You are now listening to the November 25th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Let's Read the Bible, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with Let's Read the Bible. Hello, this is Nicole with Let's Read the Bible. There is a Korean proverb that says, The one who is thirsty digs a well. It is saying that people would not be needing to dig a well just because they are gathered together. But a person who is thirsty will dig because that person needs a well. What it implies is that when there is something that needs to be accomplished, a person who has interest in the task and is capable of doing it will take on the task. God gave us the good news of the gospel, but the ones who accept it are those who realize they need that gospel. For those who do not feel the need for the gospel would not even try to hear about it. Proverbs chapter 8 that we are going to read together today is God's word about wisdom that has been personified. Chapter 8 verse 1 says that wisdom is calling us with loud voice. It says wisdom is calling people from the side of gates of the town and from various entrances. Why do you think wisdom is calling people? Wisdom signifies the mental ability to understand the nature of things and apply that understanding in their life. People who possess wisdom understand the purpose of a task and are able to complete those tasks in a short amount of time. But people who lack wisdom fail to accomplish the task because they do not understand the purpose of what they are doing, even though they are doing something. Wisdom is especially important for God's people. When we realize the reasons and purposes of God for putting us in this world, we will be able to live our lives wisely, accomplishing those reasons and purposes. For those people who are not wise and do not realize these reasons and purposes, they will waste each and every day without understanding why they were put on this world. That is why wisdom is calling out to people. It pleads to us to come to it and acquire it. It shouts that with wisdom, we will be able to live well with purpose in our lives. But as I said in the beginning, the one who is thirsty digs a well. Those who realize, I need wisdom to live in this world. Those who appreciate the need for wisdom will seek wisdom. So, wisdom shouts like this in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 17. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently will find me. It promises that those who love wisdom and seek wisdom early will find it, and in return, they will enjoy the love that wisdom gives. What about you? Are you seeking wisdom diligently? Do you realize that you need wisdom from God to live in this world? If you have ever asked yourself, the deep questions about why or how you are living, were you able to answer them? Where do you think you can get answers to these questions?
we can get answers only from God, who created this world that we live in. I hope that we will seek wisdom diligently because we have love for it. I hope we will seek wisdom from God, not the wisdom of the world, so that we will be able to live our lives with purpose, accomplishing the will of God in our lives. Let's read Proverbs chapter 8, verses 1 to 36 together. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads she takes her stand. Beside the gates, in front of the town, at the entrance of the portals, she cries aloud. To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Herefore I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. For my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands, and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction instead of silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance, and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. By me kings reign, and rulers decree what is just. By me princes rule and nobles, all who govern justly. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains have been shaped, before the hills I was brought forth, before he had made the earth with his fields, or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him, like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world.
and delighting in the children of man. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise, and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. Whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. We just read Proverbs chapter eight, verses one to thirty-six. Next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Wilder of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is the truth and worthless religion. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill. 
those of you that are new or watching online, we're in the middle of a series called The Truth Will Set You Free, and it's Mother's Day, and I thought, well, do I just kind of scrap the series for today and talk about how awesome moms are? But I decided to stay in the series because I wanted to talk about something we all have in common, and it doesn't matter if you're a Christian, non-Christian, atheist, believer, uh, doesn't matter where you are, we all have one thing in common, and that is we all dislike the same thing, and that one thing that we dislike is worthless religion. Amen? Now, you might be sitting here going today, why in the world is he talking about worthless religion on Mother's Day? And here is why. I would venture to guess that there are many of you here today or that are watching online right now, and the only reason you're watching is because you're awesome. You are awesome, and you love your mom, your grandma, and they said, would you come to church or tune in and watch, and you love them, and you say, I will do that for you. I do that because I love you. But going to church And hanging out with Christians isn't something that you normally do or even care to do. You don't even care to do that. And I get it. And I would venture to guess that for some of you, if not many of you, it's because you have been turned off by what you perceive to be worthless religion all around you. And if that describes you even remotely, no, I get it. I get where you're coming from. As a matter of fact, this church gets where you're coming from because this is a church that strives to practice true religion and not worthless religion. I would say so many people that grew up and they hate church. Do you know why they hate church? Is that they have a drug problem. They were drugged by their parents to church and it was worthless and it was horrible and they had a horrible experience. If you've been turned off by, you've gone to churches and you've just experienced weird stuff or what you perceive to be worthless religion, I get it. And again, the the people in this church get it. You know, um, worthless religion, there's nothing new about it. It's been around forever and it's all throughout the Bible, believe it or not. Let me give you an example of worthless religion in the Bible. Jeremiah chapter 5 says this, an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. Now, if I didn't read the rest of the verse and I said, if you had to fill it in, what would you think it is? And we'd fill it in with all sorts of ideas of like, I wonder what this horrible and, and appalling thing is. Well, you know what it is? It's worthless religion. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule at their direction. And here's the kicker. This is perhaps the worst part of it all. The people love it so. The people love it. And that really describes a lot of what I see happening in the world today. I see false prophets on TV. They're teaching and preaching all sorts of crazy stuff. And you see people, religious leaders ruling, not by the word of God, but by their own wisdom and what they think is right. But what breaks my heart is that the masses of people follow them, follow these people and this worthless religion. So what Jeremiah experienced is no different than what I see happening today. And perhaps you've seen it as well. Let me give you another example of worthless religion. This comes from the book of Malachi, and this is God talking to the priests of Israel. And he said, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am your father, where is my honor? And if I am your master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest. Now listen to this, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? Now listen, there's nothing worse than a corrupt priest But you want to know one thing that's worse than a corrupt priest? A corrupt priest that doesn't even know he's corrupt. One that's clueless. You're clueless and you're corrupt. It says, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised when you offer blind animals and sacrifice. Is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept Or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. Worthless religion. It's all throughout the Bible. It's all throughout history. Every one of us have experienced it. In this case, you have corrupt priests. They don't even want to give God their best. They want to give God the leftovers. 
Now, if worthless religion is something that makes your stomach sick, there is somebody who understands you better than anyone else. And you might be surprised at who it is. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And for whatever it's worth, like I said, I understand and this church understands. Do you know that no one encountered more worthless religion than Jesus? And no one was more bold to call it out. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons they crucified Jesus is because he got in the face of worthless religion and worthless religious leaders and called him out on it. The religious leaders in Jesus's day were some of the most self-righteous, hypocritical, self-serving people that ever walked the face of the planet. And that's why Jesus reserved some of his most severe rebukes for that group. Let me give you an example of one. Here's one of the rebukes that Jesus offered to those that were practicing worthless religion. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you're hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all in cleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So in the ancient Jewish religion, if you touched a corpse, you were unclean. But the religious leaders took it a step further and they said, if your shadow even passes over a corpse or a tombstone, you're unclean. And so what they did to protect themselves is at Passover, they would paint tombs white, especially the ones that were hard to see or that you might just stumble upon and not know what that was there. So they'd paint them white so that you could see them. And, they look, and of course, they looked bright on the sun. They looked really nice on the outside. And Jesus says, you're just like those whitewashed tombs. You're really, you might look good on the outside and you might draw attention because you look good on the outside, but you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness on the inside. So again, if you hate worthless religion, if you're here today because mom or grandma said, would you come to church or tune in and watch? And you're like, you're awesome. You're an awesome person. You're like, of course I'll do that. We're glad that you're here. We really, really are. And if you've experienced worthless religion, I'm with you. I've experienced it. We all have. Here's what I want to say. If you get nothing from my message today, just simply get this. Don't let those who practice worthless religion keep you from seeking the Lord. Because you're going to experience it in this life. You're going to have to wade through a lot of it. But don't let those who practice worthless religion keep you from seeking God. So when Jesus said this, he said, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. Do you want to know one of the things that the truth will set you free from? Worthless religion. If you know what the Bible says is true, if you know the truth, one of the key ways it'll protect you is from worthless religion. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. So back in Jesus's day, 2000 years ago, perhaps the number one way that the religious leaders of that day were practicing worthless religion was they thought that if I just act super religious and obey a bunch of rules and regulations and traditions, if I meticulously, if I obsess about them, then God will see me as righteous. As a result, they obsessed and they drove everyone crazy. They drove literally everyone crazy. Not only did they practice that type of religion where they obsessed about rules and regulations 24 hours a day, they forced it on other people. As a matter of fact, Jesus said this, they, that is the religious leaders, tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move a finger to help anyone. So they are like, they're going to be self-righteous and legalistic and obey all these rules, but they're going to expect you to do it too. And so they're going to heap all these rules on you and all these regulations, all these traditions, you're going to feel crushed by it. They're going to do nothing to help you. And they're going to say, that's how God's going to accept you. Be like that. You see what the religious leaders failed to understand, and this is so incredibly important, and this is where the truth will set you free. 
It's impossible, even for the very best person, to become righteous enough through their own good works. You can try to obey every command in the Bible. You'll fail. I'll fail. None of us will be able to do it. You can't become righteous in God's sight by obeying a bunch of rules, regulations, and traditions. I'm not even kidding when I'm going to say this, but it's easier for you to jump over the Grand Canyon than to become righteous in God's sight through obedience. And it was this very type of religion that the Pharisees were practicing, and they were forcing it on everyone else. As a matter of fact, they were so zealous about this legalistic, you know, put a ton of traditions on you and this type of religion, they would cross land and sea to to get this word out. Listen to this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. That means convert. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him, listen to this, twice as much a child of hell as yourself. If you've ever experienced worthless religion and you thought, that's horrible, I want nothing to do with it, good for you. Jesus describes it as the type of religion that will, that it's worthy of hell. That's, that's how bad worthless religion is. So if you've experienced it and you're like, I want nothing to do with it, you're in good company. You are. And so that's really important for you and me to know. You see, the religious leaders, they failed to understand was that what they failed to understand was simply this, is that the righteousness that you need and that I need is a gift. It's a gift. That's true religion. You want a great example of where the truth will set you free from worthless religion? Worthless religion says you need to try and work and do all these things and obey all these rules and practice all these traditions, and maybe, just maybe, you'll be good enough when you die. True religion says this, salvation is a gift. It's a gift received by faith. That's true religion. To put it another way, salvation isn't a reward for the righteous, but a gift for the guilty. And it starts with just all of us saying, I'm guilty. (laughs) I'm not righteous. Are you guys righteous in and of yourselves? No, none of us have a righteousness of our own. As a matter of fact, uh, Romans says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us, every single one of us, and are justified by his grace as a, everybody say that word with me. It's a gift, true religion. You want to know what true religion is? It's receiving salvation as a gift. But here's the deal. Mankind, guys like me, pastors and church leaders, we have a really great way of taking what is simple and beautiful and making it complicated and burdensome. And so we take this beautiful gospel message that says we're saved by God's grace. It's a gift. You receive it as a child. You just say, Lord, I'm a sinner. Forgive me and accept me. And he will. But we take it. We go, but then this, 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 and this. And pretty soon you're way down. And you're like, what is this? I I, I don't like what I'm experiencing. And that's right, because what you're experiencing in that moment is worthless religion. You know what's interesting? Is when you call upon the name of Jesus, not only are your sins forgiven, but here's the kicker. All the righteousness that you need is given to you as a gift. See, what happened when Jesus died on the cross was the Bible says our sins were transferred to him. He bore the punishment for our sins. But here's the kicker. The Bible says his righteousness, remember, he never sinned. His righteous life is credited to our account. So I always do this. If you're new to the church, this might be new to you. But if you've been here, you've seen this a thousand times before. This is me and I'm a sinner. This is Christ and he's righteous. And the Bible says there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. So I run to Jesus and not only are my sins forgiven, but I run and I put myself in him. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. His righteous, not only am I forgiven, but his righteousness covers me. So that when God the Father looks at me, he doesn't see me as a sinner. He sees me covered in the righteousness of Christ. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That's true religion. That you're saved by God's grace. You can't earn it. 
You can't run around obeying a bunch of rules and traditions. It'll never happen that way. No one could do that. Not even the very best of us. You're made righteous by God's grace. That's why this verse says this, for our sake, he, that is God the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. Jesus didn't ever sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, when a person believes on Jesus, they become righteous in God's sight the minute they believe. And that is why Christians can pray, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I should die before I wake, I know the Lord my soul will take. How do I know that the Lord will take my soul when I die? Because Jesus did everything I needed in order to be saved. Amen? He did all the work. I simply believe. I receive it as a child with childlike faith. Now, sadly, here's the kicker. A lot of churches are filled with people who don't understand this. And here's what happens when you don't understand this. These churches become filled with people just like the religious leaders in Jesus' day. If you don't understand that you're saved by God's grace through faith, what you're going to default to is what the religious leaders in Jesus' day defaulted to, a legalistic, self-righteous way in which you're trying to live and you're always looking down on others. You're like, well, I'm more righteous than you. You know, I, I'm so much better than you. I haven't missed church in five years, you know, as if going to church is going to make you righteous. What makes you righteous? Your faith in Jesus, right? You go, well, I help old ladies across the street. I'm more righteous than you. What makes you righteous? Helping old ladies across the street or placing your faith in Jesus, the righteous one. That's it. That is it. And if you have experienced that type of religion, self-righteous, you know, just hypocrisy, and you, you just left feeling like, man, that's worthless. I want nothing to do with it. Guess what? You're 100% justified in that. You really are. True religion, just remember this, isn't putting your trust in what you can do for yourself. It's about putting your trust in what Jesus has done for you. He died on the cross for your sins and he rose again and he offers you eternal life. Don't trust yourself, trust him. Trust him. And when well-meaning pastors and churches try to complicate that gospel message, have nothing to do with it. Just go, no thanks. I know that salvation is a gift from God. The Bible says this, if you, it's, this is it. It's, you want to know how simple Christianity is? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You see, Jesus never meant for the Christian life to be complicated or burdensome. And if you don't believe me, listen to Jesus himself. Listen to what he says here. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. In other words, if you're trying to please God by running around being a self-righteous person, stop it. It's just going to be a burden on you. Come to me, all of you are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. A yoke is something that they would put animals in and they would pull the cart so a yoke would be on your shoulder. He goes, put my yoke on you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, when a person becomes a disciple of Jesus and begins to learn from him, what you quickly discover is that living for the Lord is, is so much simpler than it, than it is often made out to be. Again, too often, men like myself, pastors and well-meaning religious leaders, have a way of taking that which is simple and straightforward and making it complicated, burdensome, and, and ultimately worthless. That's exactly why you'll find, sure, when you, when you experience a religion, when you run into religion that has a bunch of man-made rules, regulations, and traditions— um, and, and it feels bizarre, it's because it is bizarre. It is. And by the way, you don't have to be a Christian to be able to recognize worthless religion. Non, if you're a non-Christian and you go, I can spot worthless religion when I see it, that's because you can. You can. Mankind is great at coming up with rules, regulations, and traditions to dump on you as if that's what true religion is all about. Did you know that Jesus summed up the entirety 
of what it means to live a life that is pleasing to God in two simple commands? If you don't believe me, listen to him yourself. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Which is the greatest? Come on, Jesus, tell us. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. As a matter of fact, look at what he finishes with. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, if I'm going to sum up everything the Bible says, here it is. Love God and love others. Love God and love others. Folks, that is religion made easy, isn't it? Two simple steps. Religion made easy in two simple steps. Love God and love others. That's what Jesus is saying. It's a perfect example. This is a perfect example of where knowing the truth will set you free from worthless religion. When you run into people who try to complicate what Jesus is saying here, don't let them. Don't let them. Now, the question becomes, well, what does it mean to love God? And what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? If we can get those two things down, we're set. Because when we get those two things down, we're always going to be practicing true religion. So what does it mean to love God? Well, let's let Jesus speak for himself. Here's what Jesus says on the matter. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. In other words, you don't have to listen to well-meaning religious leaders who aren't, who are telling you stuff that I haven't commanded you. You're free from that. That's what he's saying here. You can be free from all the crazy people in the world who are going to try to dump worthless religion on you. Just listen to me. Listen to my voice. Jesus says, if you listen to my voice and what I command and what I want, you'll always practice true religion. Now, here's what's interesting. What John, who was one of Jesus's disciples, had to say about keeping the commandments of God. Listen to this. For this is the love of God that we keep his commands, not the religious leaders, not the pastors or priests, not what they say. We just want to know what, what the Bible says, what Jesus says. But here's what he says. And his commandments are not burdensome. They're not burdensome. It's the same thing Jesus said. My, take my yoke upon me. You'll find that the religion that I'm calling you to practice isn't burdensome. Now, it might be challenging at times because we live in a fallen world and it can be challenging, but something can be, just because something's challenging doesn't mean it's burdensome, Right? If you love working on cars, working on cars can be challenging, but if you love working on cars, it's not a burden, is it? Or take our orchestra. If you love playing an instrument, there's a lot of practice. There's a lot of challenge that to, to become great at an instrument, there's challenging times in front of you, but it's not a burden. You love to do it. This is what Jesus is saying. If you'll just come and practice the religion that I'm telling you to practice, you'll find that it is amazing. And his disciples said the same thing. The irony, here's the irony. Most people think that Obeying the commands of Jesus are not only burdensome, but it sucks the funny right out of the room. No joy, right? I'm going to obey Jesus. All right, mom, I'm just going to have this miserable life, you know, the rest of my life. This is what we think. And by the way, many Christians feel that way too. Many Christians have been burdened with false religion. What sucks the funny out of the room is worthless religion. And if you think I'm blowing smoke, let, listen to what Jesus has to say. Here's what Jesus has to say. If you keep my commandments, in other words, learn from me. Don't learn from all the other people that are going to try and force all their crazy ideas on you. You will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be. Listen, Jesus, Jesus knows what he's doing. He's the creator of the universe. And he's saying, listen, if you'll listen to my voice, you'll practice true religion. It won't be a burden. You'll love it. The problem is most people start giving ears to people who don't know what they're talking about, who aren't teaching God's word. And that's where worthless religion comes in. Can I give you a great example of it? How much should you give to the Lord? And people are always going to say, well, you got to give 10%. That's what I've always been taught. You got to give 10%. If you don't give 10%, God's going to be displeased. 
right? Pass that plate. Let's everybody give 10%. And so people walk around feeling guilty their whole lives because giving 10% of your income is a lot. And they go, well, Israel had to give 10% in the Old Testament. No, Israel had to give 23.3%. So if you want to use Israel as your example, start giving 23.3%. We are not Jews living under the Old Covenant. We are believers living under the New Covenant. And the New Testament standard for giving, a perfect example of where knowing the truth will set you free from worthless religion. What does the Bible say? What's the New Testament standard for giving? 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each man, each woman should determine in their own heart what they want to give and give joyfully. That's it. It's between you and the Lord. Give whatever you want, wherever you want. It's between you and the Lord. It's no one else's business. Just give joyfully. That's all. That, that's it. Now, does that sound good? Isn't that freeing? By, by the way, I've said it before. I'll say it again. You'll always know that you're potentially in an unhealthy ministry or church or around unhealthy religious people when you're, the, the truth always brings freedom. So when you're around people where there isn't freedom, and you're feeling oppressed, and you're being told you have to do this, and this, this, and this, and, you know, cross your T and dot the I's, and if you don't do these things, God's not accepted, you know. Be careful of that. That could be a sign that you're around unhealthy people. All you need to do is listen to the commands of Jesus. Obey him, the Bible says, and you will always practice true religion. So let's have a little fun this morning. You guys want to have some fun? It's Mother's Day. We got to have a little fun. We're going to put this to the test right now, okay? So Jesus says, my commands aren't burdensome and they bring joy. So let's put that to the test and go, let's look at Bible passages that talk about true religion and find out if it holds up to this test. So I'm going to quote a verse for you out of the Bible that talks about what true religion looks like. And I want you to ask yourself, does this verse sound burdensome and does it, will it remove the joy out of my life? You ready? Okay. This is the test. Everybody's got to pass this test or Jesus doesn't love you. Okay. (laughs) Just kidding. Here we go. He has told you, oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require? Oh, what does he require? I really want to know what the Lord requires. What does he require? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. That's true religion. Folks, true religion made easy in three simple steps. Be somebody who loves justice and loves kindness and walks humbly with God. Be a just person. What does that mean? It means just be somebody that likes what is good and right. Be somebody whose heart beats, say, what is good and right? I'm for that. If I'm, I'm for what is good and right, then I can always know I'm practicing true religion. That's, that's pretty simple. I can do that. That doesn't sound too burdensome. Just be somebody who practices what is good and right. Second one, love kindness. Amen. If that's what true religion is about, I'm all in. In a world where you can... You can be anything, be kind, right? Love kindness. In other words, treat others as you would want them to treat you. That's religion made easy. That's religion I can, I can practice. And then the last one is walk humbly with God. In other words, stay close to him. Stay close to him. Follow him. And here's the kicker. Don't think you're smarter than him. You're not. You're, you go, well, Pastor Bill, I come to your church. There's no doubt I'm smarter than you. You are. I am not a smart individual, you know. (laughs) Uh, What was that movie where he said that? I'm not a very smart individual. Forrest Gump. Listen, you want to know part of the reason I'm in this pulpit? It's not because I'm a smart individual. It's because I'm an overachiever. That's really simply it. (laughs) I really am. Uh, I'm not that smart. If I ever told you what I got on my SATs, I won't ever tell you, but it's not good. (laughs) But here's the point. You may be brilliant, and you probably are, 
But whatever you do, don't think you're smarter than God. That's true religion. True religion is staying humble before God. God, you know what's best. So I'm going to humble myself under you. You don't have to humble yourself under me in that sense. Bill's not that smart, but God is. So humble yourself and listen to his voice. And you listen to his voice. His voice is right here in God's word. You let this speak to you. This is true religion. I don't know about you. I can do this type of religion. Now, here's another verse. You ready? Let's, let's put this to the test again. Let's do another verse. Here's another verse. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. It's going to be really complicated. Are you guys ready? Super complicated. Here it is. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Does that sound complicated? Is that burdensome? Heaven's sake, for heaven's sakes, no. True religion is about caring for those that are less fortunate. Those in society that don't have what you have, keep an eye out for them. Remember back, when, if you're my age or younger, back in the day, you know what we used to say to people when they, were, when they were acting like jerks? We'd be like, dude, be cool. Remember that? Be like, dude, be cool. That was a gut check. We'd go, dude, be cool. That's what this verse is saying. Be cool. If somebody doesn't have what you have, be cool and look out for them. If somebody doesn't have the protection you have, look out for them. That's true religion. If you can practice that, you'll practice true religion. This is how easy and simple the Christian life is. And then the second one is, and keep oneself unstained from the world. It's religion made easy in two simple steps. Isn't it interesting that the Bible passages that we're reading that talk about the religion that pleases God really boils down to like one, two, or three things at most, depending on the verse that you're reading? It's just that simple. Keep oneself unstained from the world. In other words, be in the world, but not of it. God who is holy called you to be holy. Live for him as best you can. Of course, you're going to fail and you're going to fall. We're all going to sin. But when you do, grace abounds. That's what being a Christian means. We we walk in the grace of God even when we fail. Folks, that's true religion. Watch out for people like me, religious leaders and churches and other things that might be well-meaning, but are going to complicate what true religion is about. And they're going to say, well, yeah, true religion is doing that, but it's also this, 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 this. Got to come to church seven days a week, you know, got to mow the pastor's lawn, da-da-da, and all this other stuff. (laughs) Don't worry, I don't have a lawn, so you don't have to worry about that happening. (laughs) But again, it boils down to this. If you get nothing from my message today, if if you're here because you're here because mom or grandma brought you to church and you don't want to be in church and you don't want to be around Christians because you've experienced worthless religion, I get it. Nobody gets it better than Jesus. If you get nothing from my message, simply get this. Don't let those who practice worthless religion keep you from seeking after God. He's there. He loves you. He sent his son to die for you. Run to him and trust him. Listen to him. You don't just listen to him and he will set you straight. Now, if you've been turned off by worthless religion, again, Jesus gets it. He gets it. So what I want to do is I want to finish by looking at a verse, one more verse that talks about true religion. Again, I'm going to ask you the question. I'm going to read this verse. I want you to ask yourself, does it sound burdensome or does it sound like it's going to remove the joy out of your life? So are you ready? Here we go. Here it is. Walk as children of light for the fruit of light is found in what is good, right, and true. There it is. Religion made easy in three simple steps. Be somebody who loves what is good, right, and true. Can you practice that sort of religion? Does that sound burdensome to you? No. Do you think that practicing what is good, right, and true is going to take the joy out of your life? No, it's going to bring joy to your life. It's when you're running from these things that you're going to experience the division and the hurt and all sorts of other crazy things. But if you, that's religion made easy. But you know what I love about this particular verse is it has a little challenge right here. It says this, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. 
And you know why you have to try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord? Because you live in a fallen world where there's a bunch of worthless religion. So you're going to have to wade through a bunch of worthless religion to find out what pleases the Lord at times. But the point is, don't grow discouraged. Don't let your heart grow discouraged when you see worthless religion or you've experienced it or you have to wade through it. There is such a thing as true religion that is pleasing to God. And it's incredibly simple. It won't burden you. It's about coming to God and saying, Lord, I'm a sinner. Receive me, forgive me, and he will. And it's about saying, Lord, I'm going to do the things that please you. I'm not, going to, I'm not necessarily going to listen to all these crazy people out there that are trying to add all these extra things. I'm going to walk humbly with you. I'm going to love kindness. I'm going to treat others as myself. I'm going to love you. I'm going to obey you to the best of my ability. And when I fail, I know grace abounds. That's what it is. That's what we're talking about. So if you're here today and you want to know what gifts can I give mom or grandma, whether they're here, maybe they're not even living. You want to know the greatest gift that you can give to those moms in your life, whether they were your actual mom or grandma or just a motherly figure in your life? It's this right here. The greatest Mother's Day gift that you can give this year or any year is simply this, is an open heart to the things of God. It's an open heart to the things of God. If you're here today because you're an awesome person, because you love mom or grandma and you're like, I'll go to church just for you, but I don't want to be there. I don't want to stay there. I don't want to be around those people because I have experienced too much worthless religion. Get it. Get it. You're 100% justified in that. But remember, don't, if you want to give the, a, a gift to the one that you love, mom, grandma, whoever it is, just go, I don't want anything to do with worthless religion, but I will have an open heart to the things of God because there is such a thing as true religion. I'll listen to the voice of Jesus and I'll, I'll seek to discern those things that are pleasing to him. Truth, I found. 
Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries has the opportunities for anyone to volunteer in editing, producing the program, or even reviewing the broadcasts at our office. You don't have to be an expert. We are excited to teach anyone that is willing to learn. If you are interested in learning how to be an editor, producer, or even a reviewer, please contact us at 602-866-8999 or email us at heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. The following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence, and you sinned. Therefore I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned or polluted your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you, and I have turned you to ashes on the earth. In the eyes of all who see you, all who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified, and you will be no more. We know from the book of Isaiah, chapter 14, that he has fallen. How you have fallen, verse 12, from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I'll raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit in the mount of the assembly, the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. That's Isaiah speaking of Lucifer. Nevertheless, you will be thrown down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. We see in Revelation chapter 12, verse 4, that Satan took a third of the angels when he was cast out of heaven. Now we know he has access. He appears up and down, but he will eventually be thrown out for good. The end of Revelation chapter 12. So then we have the most beautiful, wise, powerful angel having fallen who now continually schemes against the people of God. If you are a believer in some manner or fashion, Satan through his minions or himself, however it is, we don't know if he directly to any of us, you know, but we know we are tempted by him. We see it in scripture. We see that he schemes against us. And we are not to be ignorant of his schemes. The Apostle Paul said that in 2 Corinthians 2.11. We are not ignorant of his schemes. It's not that we don't know about how he functions. But yet we can, on a practical basis, forget. And we need to be reminded so that we would stand firm in the Lord, so that we would put on the full armor of God, that we would be able to stand against those schemes. Well, what are his schemes? Again, his names actually give us a clue. Revelation chapter 20, Revelation 20, verse 1, I'll read this to you. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the abyss, a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He's called the dragon. That's a metaphoric description that likens him to a monster, monstrous reptile. 
Second, he's called the serpent of old, metaphorically speaks of that cunning serpent, the snake. It refers to the wicked deception we see, certainly in the garden. Third, he is called the devil, diabolos, the throw-through. He divides and separates. And lastly, he is called Satan, and the word Satan means adversary. He is the constant enemy of God's people, and that's what his name means, adversary. If you've ever had an adversary, they are against you. They are constantly against you. He is the one who deceives the whole world, and he is the accuser of the brethren. He accuses believers day and night before God. Look at this in Revelation chapter 12. And we see here in Revelation 12, the context is there was war in heaven and Michael and his archangels, the devil and his, and the devil lost and he is thrown out. This is in the middle of the seven-year tribulation. He is thrown to earth. And then there is a praise from those in heaven, which would include us if you're a believer, because we will have been raptured and we will be in heaven at the time, because we will have been seeing him accuse our brethren on earth day and night. But we will praise God that he's been thrown down. Revelation 12, 7, And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough. Amen. Isn't that great? And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. Now, this isn't his initial throwdown. This is his final throwdown. The serpent, who is of old, called the devil Satan, who deceives what? The whole world. Those who aren't in Christ are under his deception. He says there, and he was thrown down to earth and his angels thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven. And if you're a believer and you go to be with him or you are alive when the Lord comes, we're going to be there. He says, and a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and authority of his Christ has come for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them before our God day and night. So while we're in heaven, we see that the accuser is accusing day and night, but he will be thrown down. But that's one of his schemes. That's one of his tactics is to make accusations against believers. That's why we'll see later on, we need to put on the breastplate of righteousness. We need to recognize having had that put on, we're righteous already in Christ. We have an advocate with the Father. So we don't fall to his schemes when we fail and are rightfully accused. But then we are rightfully not condemned because Christ has taken the punishment in our place. Zechariah chapter 3, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Praise the Lord. So then, we have a enemy. And he is also, as we see in Scripture, called the tempter. The tempter. He tempts us, as we will say. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he became hungry, and the tempter came to him. Notice he comes when he's vulnerable physically. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, he is called the tempter also by Paul to the Thessalonians. 
So we have the dragon, the serpent of old, the devil, Satan, the accuser of the brethren, the tempter, and these names are very descriptive and they give us an idea into his schemes. Now notice his nature. The Lord Jesus uncovers him because his nature is the nature of those who are in his spiritual family. And that is everybody before we come to Jesus Christ. John chapter 8, 44, Jesus says to those Jews who thought they were of their Father in heaven, but they weren't because they hadn't believed in Jesus and they hadn't believed his word. He said, you are of your father the devil and you wanted to do the desires of your father. Well, guess what? They did want to kill him, didn't they? You bet they did. And he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he doesn't speak always a lie, he twists it and he adds it in and mixes it up. Whenever he speaks a lie, he says there, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies, a murderer and a liar. We see in Hebrews chapter 2 that he uses God's righteous judgment against sin for his tool. He uses death as his tool. He can go to God and say, well, they deserve to be separated because they've sinned, because you're righteous and holy. But yet God foiled all that through bringing Christ to provide forgiveness of sins. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since there the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Christ, likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless or impotent him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Praise the Lord for that. And we see that Satan here in this context is also, as I mentioned earlier in the parable of the terrorists, he is the Lord's enemy. He's a liar, a murderer. He has the power of death. He uses fear and death as his tool. And he is our enemy. Now notice, Scripture also reveals that he and his cohorts aren't running around with pitchforks and devil horns. He disguises himself. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13, For such men, Paul would talk about these false apostles, are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, or don't wonder, don't marvel, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He disguises himself. Therefore, it's not surprising his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their deeds. That's why we need to be strengthened in the Lord. That's why we need to put on the full armor. That's why we need to know the truth of God. That's why we need to trust the God of the truth, because there are imposters and evil men and women who are disguising themselves, trying to lead those in the body of Christ astray. So we have a liar, a murderer, a tempter, and one who disguises himself. Now, sadly, in the church, discernment is out the window. So often, someone thinks something sounds good, they buy into it and they go with it, rather than testing it with the Word of God and trusting the God of the Word. Now, we also know that he prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That means he's searching for a good target, a vulnerable Christian who is not standing in the word of God, standing firm in Christ, believing his word, trusting in Jesus. 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober spirit. Don't be all caught up in your situation and your worries and whatever's happening in your life. Don't let that happen. Get your mind and your thinking straight. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 
but resist him firm in your faith, or literally the faith. Resist him believing the truth concerning your Savior and what he has said. Believe the truth of God. Resist the devil. We see he uses deception. He deceived Eve. He was more crafty than the other animals in the garden. The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, Genesis 3.1, As God said, you shall not eat of the tree of the garden. He tempts us to doubt God's word. Remember in the parable of the sower with non-believers, he steals away the word. He steals it away. Genesis 3.1, I read this earlier, the second half. Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat of the tree of the garden. Verse 4, and the serpent said to the woman, you shall surely not die. He tempts us to not believe the truth of what God has said and the consequences for disobeying such truth. He also tempts us to doubt God's goodness. We see this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it or touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. Basically, he says the same thing God said in the Hebrew, that you'll surely die, not he negates it. For God knows, and here's his temptation, in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You're missing out, Eve. God is holding back from you. He knows this, but he hasn't told you this. What's the big temptation and the big lie in his temptation for us and here even for Eve? That your judgment is as good as God's judgment. That we can substitute our wisdom for God's wisdom. One pastor writes, The process of temptation begins with an invitation for us to trust our evaluation rather than humbly receiving God's word. And I agree wholeheartedly. And what does God say about our own wisdom in James chapter 3? Who among you are wise in understanding? Verse 13, let him show by his behavior and his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant so as to lie against the truth. This wisdom which manifests in this behavior, by the way, that's what he's saying, is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic what James says. Now, Satan's powerful and he does tempt us, but we need to recognize we are the ones who make the choice to sin. And it is not God in any way that is tempting us. God does not tempt us to do anything. We yield to temptation, whether it is from ourselves or from Satan. We are responsible. James chapter 1 is very clear about that. Let no one say, verse 13, when He is tempted. I am being tempted by God. God is doing this. No, God does not tempt anyone. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. He's actually telling us how to avoid the schemes and stand firm. It's the opposite. And he does not tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own desires. Desires to get out of the circumstance, desires to do whatever, whatever it is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, notice the language, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. How we give Satan a platform in our lives at times by simply not believing what God says. 
by relying on our own wisdom or our own feelings about our circumstances or whatever it might be, our own analysis. We heard this earlier. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Don't let your wisdom about your circumstance, which may be all accurate on the horizontal level, don't trust in that. Trust in the Lord completely. Or you are a very large target for the enemy to devour if you use your own wisdom. We have an enemy who will tempt us to trust in ourselves and our own analysis of our circumstances and situations. To tempt us to believe our judgment is basically as good as God's judgment. To doubt God's word, maybe not to set aside, we believe God's word, oh, I believe that, but we set it aside in our actual thinking and hearts. Now, folks, there's one other major method that Satan uses or scheme. He capitalizes, as he does with sin and death, he capitalizes on our sin. You see, the Ephesians were warned earlier to not give Satan a place by holding on to irritation. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your pargasmos. You're a long center. Even the feelings that come alongside that irritation, don't go to sleep with it. It's a righteous anger and you're justified. Don't even go to sleep with it. Now, ungodly anger, read in Proverbs all the Proverbs about anger. You shouldn't even be doing that. But here he says, and do not give the devil an opportunity or a place. And I see this in the lives of Christians and so-called Christians who have given Satan a place in their heart because they have gone to bed angry or irritated at their spouse or whoever and they have given him a place and now they see their spouse and the way it is through Satan's satanic eyes rather than through the eyes of forgiveness, grace, and love in Jesus Christ. Don't do it. He capitalizes on our sin. He also capitalizes on pride. If you are prideful and worldly, as we'll see, you need to be careful because you are now easily used by Satan. James 4.4, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? And what was the worldliness he's talking about? It was the conflicts they were having because they wanted their own way. It's not going to movies and dancing. It's worldliness in terms of arguments and conflict. says, you adulteresses. Do you not know friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you are prideful, you are elevating yourself in thinking you can live worldly in a sense without trusting the Lord, living that way and get away with it. But he gives greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. If you are living a life and you are not submitting to God in the areas that he has declared in your life, if you're not submitting, you are a huge target and Satan is going to take advantage of you. Submit, therefore, to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. 
Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Now he's talking about repentance here. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Confess your sin. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. This is what we are to do. And when we are not humbling ourselves, we are targets. We will be used by him. Now, in the same light, unforgiveness is the same thing. When we are unforgiving, we are used by Satan. If you have unforgiveness in your life, you are living a horrible life because you may not be saved. But if you are saved, I guarantee you are miserable because you will never be joyful or happy disobeying God, especially in an area that is so great as unforgiveness when Christ has forgiven us for so much. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10, But if you forgive anything, I forgive also, Paul writes. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, in order that no advantage be taken of us, that's believers, by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his scheme. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 10 and 11. Satan uses our sinfulness as a huge lever and leverage in our lives. And it's ugly to see that in the life of a believer. Don't let it happen. Confess your sin. Walk rightly before the Lord. Yes, we mess up, but don't hold on to it. Don't you dare hold on to these things. Anger and unforgiveness. Worldliness. Which will show in your actions. As the heavens are above the earth, as far as the waters cover all the seas, so high, so great is the love you have for me. As far as the east is from the west, you've taken away my worthlessness. You've turned my shame into joyful praise. As high as the heavens are above the earth, As far as the waters cover all the seas So high, so great Is the love you have for me As far as the east is from the west You've taken away my worthlessness You've turned my shame Into joyful praise Forever I will thank you for The grace you've given me I once was lost, but now I'm found You're everything I need I worship you, I live for you You're all that I desire And forever I will live To tell of your unfailing love As high as the heavens are above the earth As far as the waters cover all the seas So high So great is the love you have for me As far as the east is from the west You've taken away my worthlessness You've turned my shame into joyful praise And forever I will thank you for the grace you've given me I once was lost, but now I'm found You're everything I need I worship you, I live for you, you're all that I desire.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.